I'm Alex Mosin, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And there's no really better scenario to look at if we look at uh, the past Black Friday, Cyber Monday showdown to really look at this dichotomy between kind of big tech and traditional incumbents. So <clears throat> there's a lot of data out there that's really just showing the numbers uh, the online, the e-commerce numbers for both Black Friday and Cyber Monday, which seems kind of ironic, right? Given that the whole point of Cyber Monday was that it was cyber and the whole point of Black Friday was that it was kind of in-person shopping, right? At stores and, you know, rewind the clock, what, 10 years ago, there was no Cyber Monday. It was just Black Friday and everyone would go into the store and buy stuff after Thanksgiving. Now, all the numbers are basically just online numbers for both days. Um, so let's just start there, but understand that caveat of all of this, right? Now, here are some predictions uh, by Adobe. Um, this is Adobe Analytics. They're, they have um, this thing called Omnivore, which is a very popular uh, piece of software that's used by a lot of these different e-commerce sites, right? So these are their predictions. They are estimating online holiday spend will surpass $189 billion, which is up 33% as compared to last year. This is overall holiday spend online. They're saying if there's additional stimulus, which has not come to pass, and additional store closures, which has kind of come to pass, but not really, then you'll have a 47% year-over-year jump to $200 billion. Their estimates for Black Friday, again, and I think these estimates were the online e-commerce estimates for Black Friday, again, kind of an oxymoron, was $10.3 billion. I'm assuming, it's not totally clear, you can see that here, um, that that's the online estimate, I guess. And then Cyber Monday, that should be a totally online number, $12.7 billion, was Adobe's estimates going into um, this, you know, mega shopping weekend. So how did things actually compare? Uh, let's, let's see. So let's look at Cyber Monday. Adobe had it $12.7 billion. Uh, CNBC says it actually hit $10.8 billion on Cyber Monday. The biggest U.S. e-commerce day ever, right? Look at the title. $10.8 billion, the biggest U.S. e-commerce day ever. It's actually not that good. They were expecting it to be 12.7. It came in at 10.8. So that's not, that's, you know, it's not that close of a miss. That's kind of a big miss, right? That's what, maybe a 15% miss. When you look at the title of these things in the media, Right, it kind of hypes it up, but no, in reality, it's a big miss. Cyber Monday spending rose fifteen percent year over year instead of what did Adobe have it at? You know, they thought it'd be thirty five percent year over year. It's only fifteen percent year over year. These are pretty big deltas here, gang. Obviously, it should be higher because there's a pandemic going on. We have all these uh, forced store closures, although the big box stores really get a pass largely. You know, I spent uh, the holidays out in Minnesota 
with my in-laws and all the small stores are shut down on lockdown, all this kind of stuff. You drive by the Best Buy and the Best Buy is packed. So riddle me that. Anyway, uh, Cyber Monday still missed. Um, how did Black Friday do? Black Friday. It's hard to actually find this. You, you actually, I couldn't find any actual Black Friday physical retail sale estimates, um, either estimates um, or projections. Neither, really. All I could really find is that consumers spent an estimated $9 billion on Black Friday online, but that they estimate Black Friday store traffic is down 52%. So overall, you had the most amount of sales on Cyber Monday from the numbers that are available, these estimates. And then you had, you know, Black Friday estimated 9 billion. Um, they're saying there's a 22% increase over the 7.4 billion in 2019, but you had 52% um, you know, drop in store traffic. I wouldn't say things are that pretty. Uh, Thanksgiving store traffic was down 95%. Sales at big stores surged by 400% on Thanksgiving and Black Friday compared to the daily average in October. Uh, and they're saying sales at smaller retailers also grew at 350%. And I don't know how they're calculating, you know, how they're classifying small retailers and how they would even really get that data. Again, that omnivore software is, you know, it's not used by small retailers. That's a, it's like a pretty heavy enterprise tool, right? Um, it's not like a Google Analytics that you just kind of bam, plug in, and it's free. Omnivore and Adobe software, that's kind of the enterprise-grade level stuff. So a small retailer that can afford Adobe, which is the one that's powering a lot of these estimates this year, it looks like. I think that's also another oxymoron. Small retailer that can afford enterprise analytics software from Adobe. Hmm, yeah. <laughs> Lots of odd things going on this year. But <clears throat> no, I think... In general, small retailers have been hurt. Small retailers don't have the e-commerce presence that large retailers have. Small retailers don't have the lobbying power, which we're going to hear from Elon Musk in a little bit here. It's all going to come full circle on the kind of lobbying power that large enterprises, whether especially big tech, but also large incumbent retailers in this scenario have. Um, with you know local or state governments to kind of be qualified as essential because they've got high ceilings, you know. And if you've got high ceilings, then um, I mean, yeah, obviously you should you should be able to skirt the the local rules where the small hardware, small mom and pop hardware store down the street. I mean, they don't have high ceilings, so it makes sense why. You know, the small guy, the small retailer is closed um, during these lockdowns, but but the big box stores stay open. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, <clears throat> oh, man. Uh, so anyway, you know, let's compare this with another favorite topic of mine, China. Alibaba and JD set new records to rack up record $115 billion of sales on Singles Day as regulations loom. $115 billion. They're saying 
that whole shopping weekend, you know, from Thanksgiving to Cyber Monday was somewhere in the 20 to 30 billion dollars. They're saying here, China, 115 billion dollars uh, on one day, I think November 11th, you know, they, they like the numbers, uh, 1111. Obviously, call it four to five X what happened in the United States. But let's read into this a little bit more. Now they're saying that this was extended past the one day period. It's still a massive number, but this now they're actually kind of saying, well, Singles Day, which was supposed to be one day on November 11th, was actually now 12 days from November 1st to November 12th. Mm, okay, that kind of seems um, like a pretty big variance. Alibaba did $74 billion and JD did $41 billion. Now, one other thing, if you just look at the reporting, look at the article, this year's single day event comes, came as the Chinese economy continues to show signs of recovery after appearing to broadly control the coronavirus pandemic. So, so that's all they make on that point, right? If you look down at this other paragraph, then they kind of continue on to other stuff about regulation. But okay, so they're linking to coronavirus pandemic, right? Like maybe they're, maybe they're linking to some kind of report which supports this seemingly like pretty um, assertive and factual testament that uh, China is broadly controlling COVID. So what happens when I click that? Well, I just go to the business news section on CNBC that just covers all things coronavirus. Well, hmm, okay. So then how do they make that statement? Because, um, oh, maybe they're going by the official reported numbers, right? Because maybe that could make sense, right? Here's World of Meters, coronavirus tracking, uh, USA at the top. And then, you know, where's China? Oh, yeah, China's all the way down here. Yeah, they only have 86,000 cases of coronavirus. That sounds like pretty, yeah, broadly controlled. I mean, China's just, you know, they're killing it. Uh, COVID's not a bit, look, they only got 13 new cases in the past day. It just seems like some days we're living in a clown world. Uh, yeah, China, 13 cases. Good job, guys. You know, mm, you guys are just, I'm going to pat you on your back, China, because you really got this Corona thing nailed. Um, let's, let's just give you some more props here. Or should we say that you can't trust one damn figure that comes out of China? Whether it's their coronavirus numbers, which they did just have. I mean, I'm even surprised that the number goes up by 13. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just disrespectful. Uh, like, they actually go to the effort to report 13 new cases. <laughs> it's, it's a joke. Um, but no, no mention of that in the CNBC article. And their economy is just, you know, doing wonderful. The China said their economy grew in 4.9%, grew 4.9% in the third quarter. It didn't even really go down at all because of Corona. Chinese economists expected GDP growth of 5.2% in the third quarter. It only went down by uh, you know, what, 6% in, um, I think, Q1. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. Why do you even bother report? Like, the more you report this and then you, you, you know, it's, it's all lies. It's all a lie. No one, you know, also fails to mention that all of the U.S. reporters uh, from 
whether it's the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, I don't know, name your media organization. Remember all those reporters were kicked out in early 2020, just completely ejected from the country? They're not there. You think they've been allowed back in and you think even if they were allowed back in that we would get honest reporting from them? Absolutely not. You can't trust any of these numbers. And then I go back to the original article here, which was that they have $115 billion of sales on Singles Day, which was turned from one day into 12 days, which... Again, Alibaba and Taobao, you know, the original market, it's really B2B sales, right? Actually, these sites grew up as B2B, um, right? It was helping local Chinese manufacturers sell stuff abroad to the US, for example. That's where Alibaba started. So you don't even really know, is this just uh, consumer purchasing? Is this business purchasing? Uh, there's no transparency. There's no numbers. Even if there were numbers and breakouts, you know, how do you trust it? Uh, the answer is you just you just can't trust it. And that's why a a I was really glad to see that Wisdom Tree and all of their wisdom uh, on on Platt's last rebalance. Full disclosure: we worked with Wisdom Tree to launch Platt. It's the only uh, platform stock index, the top platform stocks globally. Uh, international stocks in that basket of platform stocks for for plat the international exposure was limited to 10% of the overall basket and there was caps put on the number of chinese stocks that can be in the basket very smart decision and now we have seen the s&p and the dow jones remove chinese firms from their indices after the Trump administration issued an executive order, this executive order is designed to deter U.S. investment firms, pension funds, and others from buying shares of Chinese companies designated by the U.S. Defense Department as backed by the Chinese military. They said they would remove mainland listed A shares, Hong Kong listed A shares, and these ADRs of 10 companies, including, I don't know, you try to pronounce these things, uh, SMIC. I can, got, I can do that one from all equity indices um, prior to market open on December 21st. It's saying, hey, these companies cooperate with the Chinese military. Therefore, we don't want U.S. investors to buy those shares, right? You know, you think about it. You're buying the share. You're investing in the business. When you get put into these indexes, right, just like on Plat, right, you're, every dollar that goes into Plat is essentially getting coverage from the basket of stocks inside of the index, right? One share of Platt goes up or down based upon the underlying performance of the basket of stocks and their respective weighting in the basket. So right now there's 51 platform stocks in Platt. They have different weighting, uh, which there's a, a formula for, and um, Platt will go up based upon, right? the the underlying performance of those stocks and respective to their their weighting in 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 the index same thing works you know s&p 500 and um and and the dow jones index and all these kinds of things same idea as you buy more shares of the index then there's you know there's more representation and and kind of trickle down effect into into the stocks that are in the basket so effectively if you have these large pension funds and investment firms that are buying these in indexes, then that 
essentially is benefiting these Chinese companies, which are basically an arm of the Chinese military, um, as identified here. Again, you know, there's just so many little ways that the U.S. needs to get smart, start using its influence, its power, and playing the game. Okay, um, so this is a great, great example of that. There are so many of these little things that now the the U.S. has started to kind of get wise to and start to put into effect. But, you know, again, it's just lots of little things. And eventually they will kind of add up and help make the U.S. more competitive against China. Another person that understands what I'm talking about is our friend Elon. Not only does he understand what I'm talking about when it comes to China, um, he understands what I'm talking about when it comes to Platforms, co-founder of PayPal. But he did an interview recently with the Wall Street Journal. And there's some, there's some parts of this interview which I thought are really good and um, can uh, feature some of those here. When you look at the U.S. today, the landscape, it, it, would that still apply in 2020? And, and are we broadly as a society doing everything we should be doing to foster that same environment that brought you here? Yeah, well, I think... Um, U.S. is still great with respect to uh, innovation and fostering entre entrepreneurship. Um, still, it's still great. I think we don't want to be complacent and we want to uh, say, okay, how can we make it better over time? And I think we, we want to be um, cautious about the, the gradual creep of regulations and, and bureaucracy. The, it, the rules and regulations uh, are immortal. Um, and if we keep making more of a year and do not uh, do something about are removing them, then eventually we will be able to do nothing. This is very important, and I think not well appreciated. This is this is sort of like the the, the 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 slow boil of the frog. You know, the frog doesn't jump out because it gets just slightly hotter each year. Um, we should be aware of this. I think particularly at the state level. Yeah, well, I want to talk about that because uh, you, you've been running into that some in, in in California. But but let me ask in, in a broader sense. I mean, you've never been. I mean, you've been working with government. You, you do business with government now. Uh, you've, you've expressed strong feelings about government pro and con uh, at different times, depending on the circumstances. But, but when you think through an innovation lens in the broadest sense, what's the right role for government? Like, what is the role? Where should government be a player and where should it be hands off? What's ideal in your mind? Sure. Um, a lot of the time, the best thing that government can do is just get out of the way. Um, and so that, I'd say that's the, that's the default um, probably the best thing to do. Then um, after that would be ensuring that uh, there are not artificial monopolies, uh, that, that um, uh, there is a fertile ground for startups. Um, and because the, 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 what can happen over time is they can get regulatory capture by large companies uh, where they influence the, the regulators and the legislators uh, to favor uh, their, their, their situation. And then you have a forest of redwoods and you just can't, the, the, the little, uh, little trees can't grow. What he's saying there is that regulatory capture, right? Look at the big tech monopolies. They have so many lobbyists that now, um, you know, they are in the pockets or ra rather the senators, the legislators, the congressmen are in the pockets of big tech. Right, big tech is making donations. They're helping to get these people elected, and then you know they whisper in their ear, "Oh, well, you're thinking about it all wrong. You know, you should be looking at this, not that." 
Um, so we saw this. So we saw this when you had this congresswoman who was talking about um, the Department of Defense was bidding out um, marketplace contracts, right? They're going to select three marketplace firms that were going to get spend from the Department of Defense, right? And um, she was saying, hey, why are we going to pick a marketplace that competes with its sellers, Amazon? You know, we should be making sure that the marketplaces that are in the program are neutral, like an eBay. And the three marketplaces that were actually chosen was one from Fisher Price. Didn't know where that came from. Don't even know if they have a marketplace. Amazon, and then I believe Overstock. But eBay wasn't in there. You know, there are many other marketplace models where they don't have that 1P and 3P where they're not competing with the sellers. So anyway, uh, this lady, great, great um, kind of recommendation on this committee. I think some defense, I think the defense committee that was overseeing this, uh, this kind of RFP or um, project. And then the chairman of the committee was this guy from guess where Seattle. And uh, he didn't like that idea and struck it down. Lo and behold, <laughs> guess who funds this guy? Amazon Seattle, right? Um, so that's what Elon's talking about is when, when, when these companies get so big, um, whether it's companies or now what we're seeing, unfortunately, is other countries, um, China, get in the pockets of our Congress people, um, it can cause problems. And, and now the government, which is what, what Elon's talking about, is to help kind of keep a monopoly from, from just being so dominant in any given space. Uh, how do they effectively deliver on that role or that value prop if effectively these uh, Congress men and women are compromised? That could mean just legally they're compromised, but they didn't do anything illegal. Right? They were just taking political donations. And I think what we'll, we have seen and will continue to see is that more and more of our Congress men and women uh, on both sides of the aisle, on the Republican and the Democrat side of the aisle um, are enriching themselves at the expense of our citizens. That is not okay. And the um, greatest punishment available by law should absolutely be brought down upon these people, irrespective of their political affiliations. But we are unfortunately seeing, I think, more and more just widespread uh, corruption in our government, whether it's supporting, you know, the whims of big corporations and tech monopolies, whether it's foreign countries that want to influence uh, what happens in America, something that needs to be done about it. I think that's some of what Elon is alluding to here. We really want to have an environment that, that tends to favor uh, smaller companies and startups. Um, the big companies really don't need the support. Um, but they will, they will generally try to uh, work the system to establish a, a monopoly of some kind. Uh, we, we should be wary of that. Um, you know, in, in general, it's like, I, I think we, we, we could consider uh, changing the, the way we think of things from, say, capitalism versus communism. I apologize for the long answer, but I think this is yeah. kind of important. Yeah. Um, 
capitalism versus communism and, and think more in terms of feedback loops. Uh, so is, uh, is a given organization, uh, does a given organization, government or, or, or a commercial, have good feedback loop for the customer, um, whether it's the, the people as a whole or you know, wh whoever the customers are? And if you've got like a duopoly or oligopoly, they're, they're generally going to ha have a weak uh, response to uh, their customer. Um, and if they're monopoly, they're going to have the weakest response uh, to, to the customer. And the, the reason that, that government, I think, uh, is often the worst at responding to uh, the, the customers being the people is that they're a monopoly that can't go bankrupt or usually cannot go bankrupt. So there's not, there's not really a, a, a cleansing process for a government uh, short of a catastrophe. Um, so, I mean, if you want to complain about the DMV, who do you, where do you, what's, the, what's the alternative? So uh, a couple of things to unpack there. First, I, I do want to, when you talk about Redwoods dominating the, uh, uh, the, the air and smaller companies having a, ch a challenge, sort of, I mean, some people would hear that as being the situation in Silicon Valley today. I don't necessarily think that's what you implied, but is that what you see in Silicon Valley today? Well, I think th this is not a Silicon Valley problem. It's just a, it's a general uh, problem. Um, I mean, if you look at, say, you know how many how many candy companies are there? Like you know, big candy is like consolidated into like three companies or something, um, and, and they also own all the dog food and the baby food. So and it's like when's the last time there was some good candy? Uh, you know, what's the forcing function for a new candy bar? I haven't seen one in ages. Um, so you know, we, we got to watch this like consolidation um, that uh, ends up resulting in lower responsiveness to the end customer and. Um, like I said, it's like you can think of like in the limit, government is simply the largest corporation. Yeah. There's some people, I think it's a false dichotomy to look at government and uh, sort of industry as, as separate. Government is simply a corporation in the limit. It is the ultimate corporation with a monopoly. Yeah. Uh, so, but then as you get closer to, like I said, a monopoly, as the, as the feedback loop gets weaker and less responsive to the customer, that's, that's, that's where you have something which does not maximize the happiness of people, which should be our objective overall. Like large enterprises or big box stores being allowed to stay open while small retail stores uh, or other service providers, you know, have to close. Who's able to kind of get in, get in good, get a word in, get an exception, Get this rule, oh, well, yeah, you don't have to follow that rule. Yeah, it makes sense, right? But, but if you don't have that access or you don't have that relationship, well, what are you going to do? There's no feedback loop. They don't care about you. We had a couple of people last night at this event uh, who were joining the Biden administration, a couple of the president-elect senior advisors. And clearly, one of the things heavily on their mind is sort of a new national industrial policy, for want of a better term. They talked about spending a lot more on research and development and fostering innovation, big government spending, basically. Um, is, is that kind of national industrial policy a good idea? Is that a good use of, of government right now in your mind? And, and if it is, where would you focus that kind of effort? Well, it's government's responsibility to establish the rules of the game and then ensure that those rules are, in, are properly enforced. Like, it's sort of like the, the, the referees on the field and, you know, it's like, it's like um, you know, football or something. Then you've got the rules and you've got the referees. You've got to make sure the rules are the right rules and the, the referees are enforcing the rules. I think 
that's, a, that's an important role for, for government uh, to ensure that the rules are correct and that the incentives uh, are what we actually want them to be for, like I said, the long-term maximum happiness of people into the future. Um, where I think government does not do a great job is when they want to not just be a referee on the field, they want to be a player on the field. Uh, this is not, does not end up in a, in a good situation. We're picking winners and losers, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, effectively, government incentives do fa- do favor. Like you're going to say, like, what are the rules of the game? Elon's being nice. This guy didn't understand what Elon was saying. Picking winners and losers isn't what he's saying. He's saying when the government starts to operate and compete against the players on the field, right? And the government says, well, I'm not just the referee. I'm not just setting the, ga- the, the rules for the game. I'm actually fielding a player or two, right? And so you see this in a lot of industries now where the government wants to actually operate a business of its own or provide a service of its own and actually compete directly against private enterprise. And this goes back to what Elon was talking about in the first part of this, right? With basically the lowest or least desire to get those feedback loops right, to listen to the end consumer because they're a monopoly and they're not going to go anywhere and they've got government money and there's no urgency. There's no hustle or um, the private, the the appropriate and kind of incentive structure that you you know what happens when you have a private business that needs to that is actually competing day in and day out, right? The whole different philosophy around running something as a government entity versus a private entity, uh, it's completely different. And that's what Elon's talking about. That's where the line should be. Uh, the government actually doesn't get in and start to operate because guess what? They do a horrible job. Okay, here's one. Uh, Elon, I'm a founder, of a, a founder and CEO of a private company in the Valley. One of the changes I'm seeing uh, is people trying to force uh, the company uh, on political and social matters, uh, you know, making demands not to sell to police or not to sell to government agencies. There's walkouts and protests at Google. Do you think this kind of thing is having a chilling effect or will have a chilling effect on innovation? Well, a lot of this stuff is, is centered in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I think there's, there's the, the Silicon Valley or the San Francisco Bay Area has too much influence on the world, in my opinion. And I say that as someone who has spent most of his life in California, mostly in the Bay Area. So you're you're like like your like your friend Peter Thiel feels it's gotten more stifling up there. You you you're expressing you agree with me, Ron? Yes, it's a big deal, by the way. He said he agrees with Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel, co-founder of PayPal, made first major investor in Facebook, a hallowed, um, you know, uh, tech and VC investor, billion billionaire, and, you know, very in- influential figure in the value. In, in the Valley, left uh, to go to LA a number of years ago. He may have even kind of left from there to, to somewhere else at this point. But um, pretty, pretty big deal here for Elon to say, yeah, you know what? I agree with what Peter is saying, right? Peter said, I just can't be around San Francisco anymore. I think there's, uh, the, the, the Bay Area has outsized influence in the world. Uh, so... Is that changing? Is the pandemic changing that? I mean, is there a real chance here that with departures and people leaving the valley that we're going to see some of that scatter out into the countryside for, for good now, uh, post-pandemic? 
I think we'll see some reduction in the influence of Silicon Valley. Um, but the social media is still very much centered in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, so I think we need to be concerned about mind viruses, just, um, you know, memes that travel very quickly through social media that may or may not be correct. Um, and we certainly want to encourage a healthy dialogue. Uh, so, you know, there's some out there who just want to shut down one side of a debate or another. I, I think we should resist that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're out of time, unfortunately, because I could go for an hour. We didn't even get to half of the questions I had, but thank you for the time. Oh, interesting how what Elon was saying there at the end, this is the end of the interview. Some people want to shut down one side of the debate and not basically have the other side of the debate. And he's saying, I think we should have healthy dialogue. Commentator says, "Mm, yeah, we got to wrap. Interview's over. Elon gets it. And you could hear it there. Social media is based in San Francisco. Social media is shutting down debates um, inappropriately. That That is not the purpose. That is not the kind of altruism and the value prop of platforms. It's supposed to connect and facilitate the exchange of information, the exchange of ideas, the exchange of value. And instead, what you're seeing is basically you're seeing these platforms become fascist, not even by a government overlord, which is what is going on in China. You're seeing these these platforms, tech content platform monopolies become fascist out of their own volition. It is shockingly terrifying. And from what Elon was talking talking about in the beginning of the interview, right, where he's saying that uh, these, these monopolies, he was saying it could be large business in general, it didn't have to be a tech monopoly, but certainly the tech monopolies uh, just have basically infinite money to, to get that uh, kind of regulatory lock-in, right? To kind of get that influence over legislators, right? And and government officials about um, who are supposed to be there to prevent them from being, you know, so dominant. And, you know, if anything, we're seeing some, I would classify it as just posturing out of the Department of Justice in terms of their case um, against Google, for example. You know, it's complete red herring that these you know, these lawyers have just decided to just go down a rabbit hole for the next five years. Even the case that we see recently brought against Facebook by the 48 state attorney generals and um, the FTC saying, well, we need to break up Facebook, but you're not going to solve the problem that Elon is talking about, which is tech censorship, right? And if you have a content platform, which is a monopoly, should they be allowed to censor? And this is Section 230 in this whole thing, right? And the argument with Section 230 is, well, if we remove the protection from the platform, then they'll be more liable. And maybe that could help clamp down on what Elon was talking about with these, and funny, a mind virus, right? Kind of like fake news memes. That just boom, zip through the uh, the algos and and ripple throughout the social network, right? Maybe, but at the same time, if you do that, I actually think you'll see more tech censorship 
as a result, because now the large tech monopolies lose their protection uh, from infringing or, 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 or content that makes them liable for, for whatever it may be. Could be defamation, slander, IP uh, infringement, et cetera. But you know, they'll lose that protection, actually give them the, the excuse to be bigger censors. And so we are seeing some uh, efforts by tech startups to try and compete and, and create uh, more open content platforms. Applico and Winner Take All uh, will be actively promoting those and actively you know, moving our content or cross-syndicating our content on those platforms. More to come on that front. We're going to be trying everything that we can do to support um, alternative content platforms to help in our little way to uh, level the playing field here. You know, there are um, big influencers that feel strongly about this, right? And so that's kind of the other interesting thing is not to call Elon a hypocrite here because, uh, you know, I give him a lot of credit for actually speaking out on this, right? Mo- many people <clears throat> with his level of just uh, audience and, and, and just kind of influence um, would, would never even dream of uttering the type of stuff that he's talking about. So I give him a tremendous amount of credit. At the same time, if more people like Elon were to say, I am going to post, let's say this video, this video, my, you know, my tweets, let's say, uh, they've kind of monopolized that word, but you know, my status updates, my video posts, right? My social media updates. And I'm going to put them out 30 minutes early on the smaller startup platforms before they go to the mainstream tech monopolies like YouTube. Facebook, et cetera. Uh, I still don't think, frankly, Twitter is monopoly status, even though Twitter is easily the most aggressive and the most um, egregious in their content censorship practices, which are completely amoral uh, and have gone, uh, you know, there's a line, and we talk about it in the book, that every platform, every ecosystem, whether it's a content platform, whether it's a marketplace for products, you do need rules and standards, right? And this is one of the four core functions of the platform business model. Rules and standards do two things. They regulate access. So who can come into the platform? What information do you need to have to sign up and identify yourself and all that kind of stuff? So regulating access. And then the second one is regulating usage, right? And how do you promote good behavior, not bad behavior on the platform? And that is really where these tech content platforms have just completely gone off the rails when it comes to uh, regulating usage on the platform. Even the up and coming platform content platform competitors to the tech monopolies, right? So uh, Rumble would be the equivalent. There's Rumble. um, There's one called BitChute. We're going to be on all of them shortly. Don't worry. Um, That would be YouTube alternatives. Uh, BitChute, I think, is kind of built as some kind of blockchain affiliation. Anyway, we're going full hog onto alternative uh, platforms uh, with our content and looking at, yeah, can you sequence it? Can I? Can you put it out maybe thirty minutes early um, on the on the smaller competitors? Right. You still want to get the audience and the reach that the that and 
and that's the right that's the crack that's the that sweet nectar that that the once you get that platform monopoly status once you get that critical mass the the platform is bringing you that audience not only do you have an audience of subscribers that you've spent years and years and years building and all that kind of stuff oh and by the way you don't have any of these people's personal information so we're going to be launching a club with uh, a phone number that you can you can basically just text us and be in direct contact with winner take all um, but we are kind of moving into a new way of operating the show and we are moving into a new way to you know really kind of try to uh, decouple from the large content platform monopolies which again you you can't really do it you still need the audience you still need the reach but how can you do other small things outside of cutting the cord which a lot of people just aren't going to do to at least give some benefit uh some advantage to the smaller uh competitors so um and right now that unfortunately becomes a partisan issue just like everything in this country right the idea of being um more open and having less content censorship has now for some odd reason become something that the the content platform startups um, that are trying to go up against the YouTubes and the Twitters and the Facebooks of the world are now branded as conservative or you know alt-right platforms. You know, since when did just being able to talk about a whole slew of things, right? About how to handle shutdowns, uh, how to handle um, where the virus came from, how to handle things as it relates to, you know, politics, presidential elections. I mean, how to handle um, religion. You know, there are so many religious figures, uh, whether from, you know, Christian religious leaders, uh, Muslim religious leaders, you know, that, that the platforms are also censoring. I mean, there are many, many issues here, but again, because I don't know, it's 2020, everything likes to just kind of be overgeneralized and stereotyped. Bam. Anyone that is for being more open and, and, and less content censorship is some kind of alt-right content platform. Well, we're going and we'll be on those platforms and we are pro uh, less censorship. We are pro letting people speak their mind. We are pro letting people make up their own opinion, even if the information could be fake. But you know what? There are so many, you look throughout history, hundreds and hundreds of years of history, and you look at how many scholars, geniuses, and you know, now in retrospect, that would have, would have been you know, the classical example is Newton, right? He said, yeah, I, you know, I don't know if everything in the universe actually revolves around the earth. Maybe we actually revolve around this thing called the sun. They literally laughed him out of town and told him he was a crazy person and a moron. Um, they, I think they, they like did the equivalent of debarring him, right? Or kind of like rejecting him from uh, academic or, you know, uh, the kind of elitist societies. And this all went back to the study of gravity and all these kinds of things, right? That he was able to ultimately prove this. Without having dialogue and open and free and fair debate, you're never really going to be able to 
um, have rigorous analysis over anything. If now whatever the platform degrees is okay, passes, or whatever the platform decides to partner with the WHO, well, if it doesn't agree with the WHO, it needs to be taken down. Or, you know, if the UN says that this is wrong, then it needs to be taken down. I mean, where am I? What country am I in? What year am I in? Right? It's clown world. It's clown world. Um, and I give huge credit to Elon. We here, uh, winner take all, will be doing our darndest to try and support more of these alternative platforms. Uh, and we will be trying to figure out ways that we can give them any benefit. So that's kind of where we are. Uh, a really interesting interview if you want to, want, want to watch the whole thing. About 30 minutes with Elon here. But uh, that's all I've got today on Winner Take All. Thanks very much for joining us. I'll talk to you soon.